You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about prediabetes. Joining me is Dr. Roshna Shah, who's an associate professor of pediatrics in the Division of Endocrinology and Diabetes and the medical director of the Adolescent PCOS Center and our Healthy Weight Program. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Shah. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really excited to talk about this topic with you because I think it's one that we probably don't talk about enough. We tend to talk a lot about diabetes and some of the things around that, but we're talking today specifically about prediabetes. But before we do, let's just be sure that we all know what the definition of diabetes is before we understand when we are approaching it. So the American Diabetes Association, or ADA, defines diabetes as, number one, a fasting glucose of more than 125 milligrams per deciliter, or number two, a two-hour glucose on an oral glucose tolerance test greater than or equal to 200 milligrams per deciliter, or number three, a random glucose of greater than or equal to 200 milligrams per deciliter with the classic diabetes symptoms, or number four, a hemoglobin A1c of greater than or equal to 6.6%. So, What labs should we be using in primary care for screening? It seems like this definition has a lot of options. So is it enough to do an in-office random glucose, or should we also send them to the lab for a hemoglobin A1c? If a patient is in your office having symptoms, which include polyuria, polydipsia, or weight loss, an in-office random glucose is a good quick option to help you triage. If the blood sugar is not greater than 200 milligrams per deciliter, then the symptoms are less likely due to diabetes and you can pursue other diagnostic testing. But for routine screening and for defining prediabetes, the A1C is best. It's more able to detect early asymptomatic disease. A fasting glucose can also be used, but the advantage of the hemoglobin A1C is that it does not have to be fasting. And while a two-hour OGTT is on the list of potential options, it is very logistically difficult and rarely used in practice. Right. Yeah, that makes sense because a random glucose is just that. It's random. It's a snapshot of one point in time, whereas your hemoglobin A1C is going to be looking at the past three months. So before we talk more about the hemoglobin A1C, can you just refresh us from medical school about what this is and what is it actually measuring? Of course. So the hemoglobin A1c is a measure of glycated or sugar-bound hemoglobin, which reflects the concentration of glucose in the bloodstream. Because the average lifespan of red blood cells is around three months, the hemoglobin A1c, as you said, represents a three-month average. This also means that the hemoglobin A1c might not be accurate in certain conditions, such as hemoglobinopathies that are causing increased blood cell turnover or with recent transfusions. That's interesting. I didn't really even think about that, that some hemoglobinopathies or transfusions might impact that. So that's a good perspective. So now that we understand the lab criteria, which patients should we be screening for diabetes? 
So in the recent AAP guidelines for pediatric obesity, they recommend screening for diabetes in children 10 years or older with obesity or 10 years or older with overweight and risk factors. And risk factors include history of maternal gestational diabetes, having a first or second degree relative with type 2 diabetes, concurrent treatment with obesogenic psychotropic medications, or conditions that are related to insulin resistance, which include acanthosis nigricans, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and small for gestational age history, among others. And the screening recommendations from the AAP are either a fasting glucose, a hemoglobin A1c, or a two-hour glucose with OGTT. For younger children, two to nine years of age, testing is recommended only with symptoms of diabetes. That's really helpful. So thank you for going through those AAP guidelines. Now, you mentioned a lot of the risk factors that we should be looking for and asking about. And I think about a lot of those, certainly obesity and overweight patients and patients with family history, but some of the conditions associated with insulin resistance aren't as intuitive to me. And I typically think about acanthosis nigricans and PCOS, but you mentioned some other things that we should consider in that category. So can you explain some of those and why those are risk factors? Yes. You mentioned acanthosis. It's a marker of insulin resistance, and it's very easy to identify and discuss with families. Polycystic ovarian syndrome is associated with insulin resistance, even in the absence of obesity or overweight. Children born small for gestational age are more likely to be insulin resistant due to intrauterine programming, and there's a lot of research in this area coming out. And then high blood pressure or dyslipidemia and glucose regulation are all interconnected fairly tightly, and abnormalities in one are predictors of abnormalities in others. It's really interesting to think about how the prenatal environment could actually be a risk factor for diabetes later on. So thanks for highlighting that. And I imagine there's lots more research coming down the pike for that as well. Definitely. So We've been talking a lot about the definition of diabetes and screening for diabetes, but as I mentioned at the beginning, this is really about pre-diabetes. So there's a category of patients with a hemoglobin A1c between 5.7 and 6.4% who are characterized as having pre-diabetes. So I'm wondering, how often do these patients go on to develop diabetes? That is a great question with an unsatisfying answer. Because the disease progression can take many years, we don't have good data on this in pediatrics. Various studies have reported two to up to 20% in different populations. We do know that in adults, the rate of progression has been reported as five to 10%. So we can perhaps extrapolate this into children but it is also important to note that prediabetes and type 2 diabetes in youth is much more aggressive than in adults. Hmm. A lot of the focus of future research is going to be on identifying the predictive factors for progression from prediabetes to type 2 diabetes so we can target this population for prevention. That's interesting. So let's work through a little bit of our management strategy with these patients. So Let's say we order screening labs on an obese teen with risk factors, and we find a hemoglobin A1c of 5.9% and a fasting glucose of 95. So what's our next step after that? 
So as we clarified earlier, this patient meets the criteria for diagnosis of prediabetes, and the standard of care in first line is lifestyle modifications. So let's focus a little bit more specifically on the lifestyle modifications piece, because I'm wondering how you counsel families about the changes they should make, because sometimes these are big and challenging shifts for families, and sometimes there's even families who might go too far in restricting intake when they hear this. And so how do you offer realistic advice and goals about diet and exercise plans to reduce the risk of diabetes specifically? So it's really important to clarify up front that the goal is not necessarily weight loss or attaining some goal weight, but really on metabolic health. And also to make sure families and patients understand that even small changes can make a big difference in glucose metabolism. Hmm. I found it best to work with the patient and family to make two to three small concrete goals that they consider manageable. So start where they are and go from there. If a child is not exercising at all, adding walks three times a week after dinner, for example. If drinking sodas daily, cut to once a week. Mm -hmm. Substitute a snack cake with a fruit or yogurt once a day. Things like that that are very concrete and realistic. Agree. I think those small little steps that seem realistic, and like you said, it's so important to start with what the patient is already doing or interested in versus having, you know, a standard prescription that you're giving, because I find patients will be able to do it so much better if you're working with their lifestyle already and trying to make these small changes. Exactly. It's really a collaborative effort with families and patients. And listeners can go back. We have a prior episode with Ellie Benner and Carrie Heckert called Preventing Weight-Based Harm. So if you want to learn more about the conversation around how to counsel patients maybe who are obese about weight and doing so without stigma, it's a great conversation. So I am plugging that prior episode for that. But for you, Dr. Shaw, I'm wondering, do you ever use medication management for patients with prediabetes? Sometimes. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, research has shown that use of metformin does not decrease progression from prediabetes to diabetes in adolescents. So for your typical patient with prediabetes, there is no indication to start metformin. However, there are specific populations for which I would consider it. One is in patients with PCOS, as metformin can help the hormonal abnormalities and help restore ovulation and menstrual cycling. And number two is in patients on atypical antipsychotics, as there are studies in adults showing that starting metformin with these medications can decrease the weight gain and diabetes risk. Of course, both of these cases are off-label usage for metformin. Interesting. Okay, so our PCOS patients and our patients on atypical antipsychotics may be folks who we want to send to endocrine for medication management, perhaps, but others maybe not as much. Exactly. On the plus side, we also have some newer effective tools in treating pediatric obesity. The GLP-1 agonist class of medications, including the daily injectable Saxenda and the weekly injectable Wagovi, are both approved for treatment of obesity in children 12 and older. And so those are also potentially therapeutic options for patients with obesity and prediabetes. Great. Good reminders for that as well. Thank you. 
So if we go back to our original patient, if we repeat the hemoglobin A1C in three months after they've made their lifestyle modifications and the hemoglobin A1C is now higher, do we then refer to endocrine? If the patient is truly making changes, and I would say four to six months is a good time frame since it takes some time to get the education to the family and for them to actually get started on making these changes, mm-hmm. and the A1C is continuing to increase, then yes, it may warrant further evaluation. If the A1C is decreasing, even if it's still slightly elevated, however, referral to endocrinology is not needed. So when patients get to us, there is a lot of fear and misunderstanding because they are calling the diabetes center and they think that their child has diabetes and will need medication, or they think we will have a nutritionist or exercise program or something else to offer, which we unfortunately do not. So if there's difficulty in making lifestyle changes or the family needs more help, referral to see a dietitian via the nutrition department or more comprehensive weight management through the healthy weight program may be the best step. Mm-hmm. Those are great points, too, because families might get very worried when you're referring to endocrinology for prediabetes, thinking, like you said, that they have diabetes. And especially in families where there may be family members with diabetes, that may be something that causes them a lot of anxiety as well. Absolutely. We see that often in clinic. Now, for those patients, though, who the hemoglobin A1C has risen, and we think they need to see endocrinology, what number are we talking about for the hemoglobin A1C? Does it have to be 6.6 or is it really failure to improve that warrants the further evaluation? Like how high of a hemoglobin A1C warrants referral? Again, that's a kind of a nuanced question. Um, Definitely if it's 6.6 or higher, which meets the criteria for diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, But I would say if a patient is jumping up fairly quickly, if it goes, for example, from 5.9 to 6.4, and we're getting closer to the diabetes threshold, and they have done all the changes and made the modifications that have been discussed, that might warrant further evaluation or management. Yeah, this is where the art of medicine and clinical decision-making comes in. I know it's hard to give a straight answer for some of these questions, but that's a really helpful framework for us to keep in mind. Now, in primary care, we see patients who have a lot of risk factors for diabetes and things that might, you know, not be modifiable, things like their family history or diagnoses like PCOS. So if they're not yet meeting that criteria for diabetes or even prediabetes, but we know that they might down the road because of these risk factors, how often should we be screening them with a hemoglobin A1C? So for PCOS specifically, it is standard of care to test for metabolic abnormalities annually. For other children with obesity and or other risk factors, annually or every other year. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So yeah, I think it's really important that you talked about some of those risk factors in the beginning so that we can keep that in mind because we're not always doing annual labs on our patients. So again, just so folks can remember some of those risk factors, do you mind just running through that list one more time so we can remember who we need to screen? Yeah, sure. So for me, I think it's easiest to remember that children with obesity, BMI greater than the 95th percentile, there's recommendations to screen them. And then for children that are overweight and have the other risk factors, which include family history of diabetes, PCOS, 
acanthosis nigger cans or other metabolic abnormalities like hypertension or dyslipidemia, as well as children with a history of being born SGA, they should be tested. For kids that are normal weight or, again, less than 10 years of age, there are no specific recommendations for testing unless there's symptoms. Great. Thank you so much for highlighting those risk factors again for us so we can remember that. Now, we've covered a lot today, and I've learned a lot about prediabetes, but what else do you wish primary care pediatricians knew about this topic? With the increasing rates of obesity in our population, particularly after the COVID-19 pandemic, the rates of prediabetes in children are rising, and our referrals are increasing dramatically. We're all struggling with volumes and getting patients the education and care that they need. And I think it's going to be really important for us going forward to work together to provide effective and efficient care. That's great. And just another way that we're seeing the longer term impacts of COVID on our patients. But I think the point that you mentioned earlier about what resources endocrinology has is really helpful because I hope folks don't refer to endocrinologists thinking that that's where patients need to get lifestyle modification counseling. And just keep in mind that that's certainly something that we can do in primary care. And when it exceeds our abilities, that a nutritionist or dietitian is really a great asset to the team and might be a better first stop before they see an endocrinologist. And for those who are in the CHOP area, referral area, using things like the Healthy Weight Program for those patients with obesity can be another helpful tool, particularly in this pre-diabetes patient population that we're talking about. Yes, in the ideal world, we would all have nutritionists working with us that can, you know, be able to speak to patients that come in for their appointments. But unfortunately, that is not the reality. Mm-hmm. And it can lead to some mismatched expectations with families and patients as well. Definitely, yes. We wish there were more nutritionists and you know, also I think important is to increase nutrition education within medical school curricula because I know at least in mine, I did not feel like I learned that much about nutrition and it's something I've had to learn along the way. But I think hopefully that will change for future pediatricians. But thank you so much for sharing all of this knowledge on prediabetes with us. Such an important topic for us, as you said, rates are going up. So something for us to be on the lookout for. So thanks for pointing out some of the risk factors and how we can manage this. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 